Welcome to the See Me Now podcast. I'm your host, Kelsey Coleman, here with my co-host, Caitlin Birdsall. And we are joined today by Dr. Elaine Venter. She is Colorado Mason University Assistant Professor of Mass Communications. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So you have a, a wide variety of interests in media. Um, one of them that I find very fascinating because I don't know much about it is the the big wide world of video games. Yeah, absolutely. Can we dive into um, the fact that one, you're the advisor of the video game club um, and what is a video game club? Why do we have it? And what role do video games play in our society today? That's a lot. Let's see if I can handle it all in in orderly fashion. Or I'm just going to clump it all together and eventually I know it'll it'll make sense. Um, to your question to why even have a video game club, it's because there's still this stigma for some reason. And I think that is improving that video games is a very isolating or isolated activity. And it's not. There are actually several games that push for multiplayer and also co-op player, which multiplayer is sometimes playing against one another. Co-op is playing with each other to achieve the same goals. Um, And so there's very much this this activity of wanting to be together, come together through activities and things like that. And it's just like board games and board game night is just video games, which we also do now as well, tabletop gaming, board gaming, things like that. Um, And so we have kids who have these interests, you know, several of us. I grew up with video games, but not in the house because my parents were actually the ones, I don't know, are they going to listen to this? Probably not. Okay. Shh, don't tell them. Um, They were the ones who actually got addicted to a video game when we were all very young, very kids. We got our first Famicom, the Nintendo in South Africa. And uh, they said, that's it. If we, if we can't play and we won't play, then you won't have consoles in the house too. So I was 23 when I got a console, but they didn't know PCs though. They couldn't get by that. When the PC came in the household, you had to have a PC to do your work, but there were games on there. So I did get to have that, but console playing is very different. But you grow up with that and you connect with it. And we have other kids who have that and they want to find others like that. So it's just like any other club that we have. Why have a ceramics club why have an art club why have a photography club why have any club is to connect to come together to have community and that's essentially what we hope and have seen that we've been providing for our community here in cmu i love that you said that because i do think there is a stigma of video games you're hiding out in your house all alone when in reality one a lot of those times you are still connected to people Mm -hmm. um what do you call them live live video games. Oh, live streaming. Yeah, live streaming. Twitch live streams. Um, and even even if you're not live streaming, there are a lot of folks who play online. I actually have a, uh, um, I have a Destiny Guild that I'm a part of and those folks who know what I'm talking about. Um, and, and it's great because some of them I know in person, some of them I haven't, but we get together, we have our own Discord group, we chat and once a week we try to play together. And it's fun because it's a moment where we can kind of forget a little bit of everything. And you th- you're not really playing, you're still with people. You're still playing with them. You're still connecting with them. It's just through a very singular focused activity. Yeah, it's another way to recreate with people. Yes. And communi- you know, you have this community that you share an interest in. You know, maybe you're not hiking, but you're still doing something together. And I think oftentimes people forget that, that that's a thing. And if you make money off of it, great. There are those live streamers who do, and that's awesome. But there are some people who are on the casual side of things. And so that's what we provide here as well. We have the esports club sport, which is for the more competitive side of things. And then we have the casual side for those folks who don't want to be competitive on a competitive sport, but still want to have, so we do have still competitive nature. I don't know if any of you play board game. We all have that monopoly story. Everyone in their family has a monopoly story. So we know how it can get, but it's just not professional. 
I love that. Yeah. It's like, it's just like board games. I'm a crazy board game person and I am way too competitive at it, but it's just another form. And, and I like that you, yeah, your perspective on it. So you're not only the advisor to our video game club, you obviously teach a full load in our mass communication department and specifically focus a lot of times on social media. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to take a minute to talk about Facebook (laughs) or more specifically the metaverse. So, you know, I feel like I'm reading something new every day about what they're trying to do, what they're Mm -hmm. actually doing, how some people are all in and spending you know, tens of thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars on buying real estate next to Snoop Dogg in this virtual world. So I was just hoping we could get your take on kind of the metaverse and where you maybe see VR and those types of platforms going in the future. Sure. So it's actually very interesting because metaverse is not always Facebook, or at least that's what we're beginning to think and understand that that's where this is going. Um, Meta specifically is Facebook or was Facebook. It's the parent company of Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp. But Metaverse that he's trying to build, and it does come off of Meta, is possibly what some are considering Web3, what the next internet will look like, right? When the internet first developed in the early 1960s and then became more accessible to engineers and other coders, it was text-based. You had to know code to be able to access the ports to get through it. And then eventually Tim Berners-Lee came and we had actual coders say, well, what would happen if we visualize this? And that was it wasn't until we did that, visualizing with back buttons, home buttons, refresh buttons, um, with Mosaic, which was one of the first uh, early um, mobile, uh, sorry, mobile, uh, online browsers, that more people mainstream actually started to develop on it. And so that was kind of our first you know, first web web 1.0, if you will, of visualization. And we've continued to advance and evolve. So this is supposed to be kind of that, that next idea, continuous obsession with how our technology integrates, accentuates our real life has been ongoing. We've had a fascination with it in our media, science fiction, um, fantasy stories, whatever you can have from early on eras. They're even, they're even stories from the 1800s that actually, if you read them, they're Skype. They talk about Skype. Um, and so now it, it only makes sense that we're thinking about what would life look like completely, not necessarily completely online, but where it's truly well and, well and good blurred. And that's, I think that's the part where many of us are like, that's changing every day and we, we don't quite know how to make sense of it because metaverse isn't always VR or AR, virtual reality, augmented reality, and then mixed reality. Um, it, it's not always virtual reality. It's not always augmented reality. It's not always mixed. The way I see it is the eventual, how do we actually separate that concept of VR, AR, you know, and MR, and it just becomes a seamless interweaving movement to the point that it it doesn't feel distinctively different. You might be offline, but you're online still. I mean, I am online now as we speak, right? I'm, my phone's right there. It's connected to the internet. I'm typically, so I have my, I have a, I have a watch with me, a smartwatch consistently, but I think Metaverse really wants to push beyond that and what that might look like. Um, nobody quite firmly has a general idea, but most of it, most people are assuming virtual reality. So yeah, reality, um, I'm already buying virtual stuff too, but the problem is how does it translate to different metaverses? So buying your real estate next to Snoop Dogg in the virtual metaverse of that address, will that translate to another metaverse? Another little Galapagos, if you will, a little island. Right now, for example, we buy all sorts of virtual goods 
online. Our music, our movies. I have fashion stuff for some of my video games. My de- Once again, come back to Destiny. One of the reasons I love the games is the way that I can customize my character. The thing is, though, I cannot take those customizations and move them from that game to another game. That's one of the issues that Metaverse is going to have to answer. When you purchase, say, for example, Balenciaga, since it's everywhere now. If you buy a Balenciaga, good. How is that in from one Metaverse? Will you be able to take that virtually to another space? And how would that even translate to meet space, if you will, if at all? It's such an interesting concept. And I know even for me, and I'm sure other listeners too, it's, it's such a hard thing to wrap your mind around because the possibilities and where it could go and how it will change honestly just blows my mind sometimes. And I I constantly think about, we had talked about earlier a movie called Ready Player One. And for those of you that haven't seen it, it's where pretty much our world in years to come and everybody's in this virtual world all the time. And occasionally they'll take off their sets, but really that's where everybody lives. They play, they can develop any type of character they want. But ultimately at the end of the movie, they realize the importance of disconnecting and connecting with human beings in the real world. And yeah. so it'll just be really interesting to see. Originally based off a of book too. Yes. To it'll be interesting to see where we go. Remediation through mediation. Yeah. In the future. Well, it's crazy too. Cause for me, I think I've heard the argument made many times of where there's not going to be uh, a line drawn, right? There's not going to be a separation between the real world and a virtual world. And in my mind, I'm like, no way, that can't happen. But then I think, well, what did I do last night? Oh, I went shopping. Well, sort of. I was on my couch on my phone. That's kind of the same thing, right? Yeah, it's exactly kind of the same thing. And then we can get to the question of what is that line? And there are a lot of people who question whether the moral morality versus the ethics of this too, especially when it comes to digital money. What does it mean? What does it take? The kind of energy that it takes to operate digital money versus paper money and things like that. Um, Right now we have questions about ethical reproduction of fashion right now, currently. That's big in the news. What does that even look like on, on virtual? Because some people have felt that it's democratizing and whatnot, but we've had instances where just because things are online and open, it's not as democratizing. It can be just as controlled. It can be just as as um, um, manipulated uh, for misinformation. So there are a lot of things to take into consideration about also. Uh, some people say, well, what does it mean for our bodies then too? And we've had an obsession with that in media too. If you see Netflix uh, uh, Altered Carbon and even before that, there were several movies, the anime Ghost in the Shell, um, infamous for that kind of questioning what happens to the body then. And there's some folks and when you get to that, like that's a that's a big issue of are we f- could this push our concept of humanity even that gets into that gets into a little bit more of the philosophy of virtual versus non-virtual spaces I suppose. Caitlin hit on Facebook or Meta a bit earlier, and I would love to to bring up Twitter. Yes, because Elon Musk is blowing up my phone with uh, uh, you know notifications all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what's your take on Twitter? What's going on? How can we even dissect what is going, what's happening with Twitter right now? It's very, it's very interesting to see how people have looked at Twitter before Musk, because a lot of people see Musk purchasing Twitter and say, you know, this one man buying up and, and a, a company and corporate control. But we, I think some people have forgotten that Twitter was a corporation to begin with. Um, they even had, I wouldn't dare say use the agenda, but they had ways in which they want to run. And the way a corporation runs is not always the same way that a government runs. So this concept of freedom of speech 
always had to be pushed in terms of what does freedom of speech and expression mean, freedom of the press versus in a corporate TOS, terms of service, versus the governmental protections, that especially different government protections. Because while Twitter is based in the US, they service users from all over the world. And there are definitely some governments who would love to see Twitter disappear. Um, governments that have been brought down by certain like, the extension of spaces like Twitter, where um, activists have been able to bring to light things that have been going on that shouldn't be going on. Um, but that's one of the issues that we have. For us to use Twitter actively, freely, that means that they have to find a way to pay for it. And Twitter is probably one of the social media that wasn't as active in advertising space as the others, but it had the potential for it. And I think Musk saw this. There's some genuine, some genuine concerns about misinformation and things like that, not just on Twitter, but because of what was happening on Facebook, who've been brought to a couple Senate committee meetings now, things like that. They've had a few controversies over this. Mark Zuckerberg firmly believes, though, that it's the people's responsibility to know whether what they're reading is false or not. But when social media becomes so ubiquitous in our lives and we rely on it now, not only just to share posts of our favorite food, um, our avocado toast, or you know our favorite hiking spots here in Colorado, we all have that photo, right? It's where we get our news. It's where news media outlets can know that they can get the most eyeballs for people to access news. So that we have to question whether that changes the very nature then of whether Twitter and Facebook and social media even should or can be corporate, although our news media is corporate too, but they follow certain principles in a way that doesn't always align with social media. And so it's this question of you need advertisers to run it and Musk wants to capitalize Twitter a little bit more, wants to be able to monetize it more, be able to have people to have more monetizing options pay $8 for Twitter Blue a month, you get a verification badge, but you also get to make longer videos. You get priority and replies, apparently. There'll be other things that people have been talking about that none of it's been confirmed. Even the verification badges have gone back and forth now. Now there'll be two different kinds of verification badges because there's a concern in the verification badge. If just anybody can pay for a verification badge, then what was the point of a verification badge trying to indicate, especially for government and news media outlets, that they were legitimate and people who were posing as parody accounts um, without noting that they were parody accounts, which is one thing he is enforcing more, which existed prior. Um, what's the point then of having that? So now they're actually having two. <laughs> They'll have the ones that indicate government, celebrity, personal or, or personal figure of note. And then the one was $8. But I think there's still going to be confusion with that. So I think they're still trying to figure out a lot of things. Um, advertisers are definitely afraid of what's been happening since because we have found an increase in hate speech. And I read this really interesting article from Vice, their motherboard uh, um, reading section, where they talk about how it's a, it's a game for trolls. And it usually is. Social media and how far they can push things is a game. And so many people just immediately, as soon as they saw Musk purchased and Musk was like, freedom of speech, here we go. Uh, comedy is alive again on Twitter. They wanted to see, okay, what does that mean? So many of them made accounts and pushed purposely to see how far it could go. But then of course, there are those accounts who have in fact always been dangerous, who have now thought, this is our opening, here we go. And we've seen increased in followings of those accounts. And we've seen a huge increase in hate speech and other kinds of speech on Twitter before. And advertisers are scared of that. You don't want to be, you don't want your brand associated with a social media space where there are people who are posting things that might <laughs> make you look very bad. So they've gone off on mass. It'll be interesting to see whether they'll come back 
after Musk has kind of figured out what he really wants his Twitter space to look like and how it can look like that, then we'll see whether they actually come back. But for right now, it's in a state of flux, as is usually the case when companies of this sort are bought over. I think it's just a big deal for us because it's the first social media that's being bought up like this in, in, in quite some time in this way. So when we're talking about mass communication and social media in in specifically, it changes so fast. And not only things like Elon Musk taking over Twitter, but Instagram. Every time I'm on Instagram, there's a new update. There's a new way. No, you want 15 hashtags. No, you want two. Now you want to tag your location. Now we're liking videos. Now we like reels. Now we're going back to static. Yep. So how do you teach your students who want to go into this profession how to stay up to date on everything that's happening in the mass communication and social media world. So the first thing is a very big note on my syllabus that says, please note, things are subject to change. (laughs) That's the first thing um, that I always put on there, especially for my social media class. And actually, that was just an issue. I've, I've It's an issue that's been happening every semester, but this semester, especially more so than others, as Instagram has been increasingly trying to figure out what they want to look like because they're in continuous ad competition against TikTok, which is now steadily becoming one of the most popular social media sites around. And advertising-wise, it's starting to show some real promise. And they've seen a lot of ad dollars being put into TikTok. And Instagram looks at that and says, oh, What do we have to do to get advertisers back to us? What do we have to get back to monetize us appropriately and get users in there? Because it's, it's, I I know this sounds really horrible. All all the people like, is social media just about making money? I mean, yes, (laughs) it is about connection and community for us and for you. But for a corporation that has to make money to maintain itself, it's always about how can we monetize this particular platform. Um, And so that is always going to be a part of it, which means it's always going to affect how we communicate, and in what formats we communicate. So have to be really honest with my students. First, I'm saying that like we are, we are subject to the corporations and their terms of service and their platforms, never the other way. So first thing you always have to have is an alternate plan. If you are going, you cannot put all your eggs in a social media basket. A strategy communication plan could never just, just include, oh, I'm just going to be on Facebook. That's it. If Facebook goes down, what do you do then? How do you communicate? Um, email marketing is a really great way to go there. We've had, you know, Google, Google with Gmail has very few times gone under. We have Outlook. There have been other email resources, a website as well, things like that. Um, and, and then it's just trying to tell my students to be flexible. To know that if you're going to be in this industry, you've got to just go with the flow. Um, you can moan and groan and complain all you want, but then you got to realize, okay, what do I have to do? How do I have to shift? What does this mean for my content, what I want to create for my audience members, um, for my community or for my consumers, if you will? Um, and then you roll with it and you experiment. Because I'll say this, every time Instagram does roll out something that they want you to do, that doesn't necessarily equate to what actually happens and how users end up using a platform. There can be a big difference too. So they say, well, we eventually want to get rid of hashtags and make it search engine optimization. And the user are like, no, we like hashtags on Instagram. They kind of look nice and they have, that's how we search things. You know, also what about the people who just create emojis or one sentence captions? Search engine optimization is going to look at that and say, well, I sort of don't really know what to do with this because there aren't enough keywords in the description to look at. Um, and so they're like, no, screw it. I've seen a lot of people who we've we've seen the three to five now hashtag list and people still say, nah, 15 to 20, here we go. And for some people it's working and for some people it's not. So that's the interesting part there in terms of that. So yeah, 
roll with the punches, go with the flow, have your favorite people that you check every day who will do the work for you and tell you what's happening, <sighs> have your group that you can commiserate with, cry with, and then do the thing. I love that. I've heard you say before um, the average user spends around four to six hours a day on social media. Yeah. And I have to imagine that this conversation comes up in class around mental health and social media. Oh, yeah. How do you, what, yeah, what do those conversations look like and how do you navigate that? Yeah, this is a huge part of our world, but also maybe not always a healthy one. Yeah, no, it, that's one of the big ethical discussions in terms of, especially for a lot of businesses, they need people on social media to see them, but you have to question yourself whether your business is actually feeding into certain things or certain aspects or certain kind of content that could be unhealthy for your users. Um, and users themselves need to, you need to take responsibility. Yes, the apps are designed to want to keep people on there. That's how it is. It's designed that way because that's how monetization works and things like that. So we have to be able to actually take our own agency and power and recognize when we need to shut off. And we need to be able to say, and that's difficult, though, because if you work on social media, I mean, you both know social media is part of your jobs. It's very difficult for us to shut off because that's where our work is. But even within the realm of social media professionals, there's a big push for taking your digital detox. You have to be offline for at least a day or more. I watched this really great French um, TV show. Oh, I forgot the title. I'll find out for it. But it's about these two women who they're addicted to their phones and social media. The one is busy stalking her, her ex, things like that. You know, fun stuff, you know, every, everyday stuff. Um, so they make a pact that they are going to be a complete digital t detox of of all of digital technology for 30 days. They even go to a camp. It's a bit... It's a bit much, of course, and dramatized and funny, but it, it's the principle was there, this idea of what do you do and suddenly having to remember phone numbers. How are people going to reach you? So they make a deal with a friend who lives downstairs for people to be able to leave messages for them. All, like a phone machine, he has to write them down for them. Um, what is that? When they're missing important information and important calls and reaching out to people. There's that kind of aspect of, yes, you digitally you can disconnect and kind of, they found certain things that was really enlightening for them and fulfilling their life. But at the same time, it recognized there are also certain things that we will always have to connect for. So you just have to find what your line is and at the point at which you have gone too far. And I think that's where certain apps have addressed the um, usage tracking data, where they can actually show you how much you are on. I refuse to use that because uh, I already know. <laughs> I know I don't need an app to tell me. I, I already know where it's at. Um, but for a lot of my students, we've now added a, a kind of a challenge for you to track and figure out when you're always on and how you are feeling and what kind of content is making you feel that way. Um, so it's very interesting to, to, for students to actually, some of them not even aware of when they're mostly, it's mostly when they're passive in a waiting room or somewhere and all of a sudden, they, many of them describe it as an urge to want to pick up their phones. And when there's boredom, they can't just sit in the moment. Um, heck, I can barely do it either, so I'm amazed at them. But that it, there is something there to say that even in moments of boredom, we cannot just sit in that moment and just let it pass. I wonder what the social science is, and maybe you know, maybe you've looked into this, but behind the, the wall of um, social media, you can be and say whatever you want. And, and people say things that they would never 
imagine saying to somebody. Oh, yeah. But as soon as you have that that barrier and you're on screen, and a lot of times it's not even anonymous, right? I mean, people are using their real identities to, to comment and say harmful, hurtful things online. And yet you, that same person goes about the world and they would never say those things to somebody else. What, what is that? What is that barrier that allows people to just be hateful? Well, the be hateful part, I, that's interesting. So they actually have done a lot of research, especially focused on children and teenagers, because that's considered the most vulnerable populations for media and things like that. And so uh, there's a couple studies have been done. And one I remember, I can't remember the name of it now, but they had done these qualitative um, interviews and it was a 14-year-old kid. And they'd, they'd asked him why he why he actually cyberbullied one of his classmates. And, and, and it wasn't even a classmate, it was just a girl on Facebook. And he said, She's not real. It, what you do on the internet isn't real. And I think it's this idea, because we use the word virtual, I think it gives this connotation of because something's virtual, people, some people believe it's not real. Because that's what we tell ourselves too. Oh, it's virtual. It's not real. Don't worry about it. If you fall in virtual space, nothing, nothing will happen to you. It's okay. And so there's this concept of it's not real. So then when you, especially as a child, as you try and make sense of things and develop an understanding of things, you can take that and then think, well, there's this person online, but it's not really a person. It's just virtual. It's not real. And we're only beginning to now understand how much of a misconception that is and misleading. It's very real. So much so that we're even looking at cases of virtual rape. Um, meta, the metaverse and virtual, you know, virtual bodies. This one woman had written a story that went viral about how she was playing a multiplayer game and her husband and I believe her father were in the room with her as another player came and started, you know, rubbing on her breasts, virtual breasts, right? And at first she's like giggling and thinking, oh, this is, this is funny. And then as she says no continuously and wants to continue playing and this other player keeps doing it, suddenly she starts to feel more and more uncomfortable about it. And what is becoming this virtual space begins to have this very real feeling of being betrayed, of being abused. And with her father and brother in the same, I mean, father and husband in the same room too, she's like, there was a whole nother level of just violation. And lots of people look at that and say, it's not real. It's virtual. I don't really do anything to you. Come on now. It's a virtual body. Um, and that's going to be very interesting as we keep to move on to the meta, because while you are, yes, it's a virtual body. What we forget to look at is how virtual connect to our real feelings. Also, as virtual spaces are looking to connect the physical body, there's, there's the guy, the creator of Oculus who decided, I'm going to take the anime that I watch, Sword Art Line, to the next level, and I'm going to create the headset that if you die in game, you die in world. And it is an actual, had double-checked it, three explosives are implanted in the front <laughs> so that if you're game over, you are game over in real. And, and a lot of people laughed at it and thought, oh, this is nutty. And I realized, whoa, he's actually trying to tell us quite something. I'm not sure if he's trying to say something. Maybe he's like, I just want to create it. But we can take something from that and saying we need to respect virtual space way more than we actually are. We need to address the reality of virtual space that does exist um, and take it more seriously. And I think that is going to, I think that's coming along. I think that's starting to happen more and more. It's fascinating and terrifying at the same time. Lane, <laughs> oh, you're scaring me. <laughs> I'm definitely not wearing any headset he gives me. Yeah, that's for sure. Definitely. 
So I wanted to take just a minute and talk a little bit about um, an association that you're a part of, and that's the Cultural Studies Association of America. And I believe you're part of a new working media group there. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about what are you all doing? What are you looking into? What are what can we expect coming out of that sure. association? Sure. So I don't know if a lot of people know that faculty part of one of one parts of our jobs and that we enjoy to do is research and we have to publish and typically a lot of associations host conferences and I got involved with CSA a few years ago and working groups are just focused areas of specialty Um, and there are many different working groups I just happen to fall mostly under new media but there's so many of us in new media that focus on different things there are people who are looking at social media uh, social uh, delivery apps uh, uh, and what that has done to working labor versus non-delivery apps on phones and digital Um, there are folks who focus purely on NFTs and what does that mean for climate change Um, so there's so many broad angles of new media that I didn't even realize until I joined this group and what we try and bring together is different scholars, even non-scholars, activists, uh, uh, artists, and groups to discuss critical... We come from a critical cultural studies perspectives on media and media studies uh, and questioning who owns the media that we have and what does that mean for what we can access, how we can access the kind of content that we get. Um, Most of us are new media focused. And so that's how that works on that front. And I love this group because they're all about actually creating things together. So I'm working with um, a PhD candidate currently, uh, um, Reed, who's fantastic, um, creating a special edition on agency and digital platforms. And we're looking at, we're accepting different uh, works from our group currently in terms of uh, different aspects and ideas of what does agency mean and what does agency look like on digital platforms and kind of looking into expanding what is the new scholarship available, what kind of what kind of works are people doing. And then the other work I'm doing is actually a podcast with them. Um, academic podcasts have been around for a while. Um, it's just some of them more successful than others because it's you really you want your work to be accessible to people outside of the academia that's that's the point of writing really and of getting the work out there we want other people to learn about these things and hopefully take it and anything we write in theory or whatever it is can be applied to your everyday life whether you are in academia whether you are a marketer whether you are just a hobbyist play video games or whatever it may be whether you're in high school or in college, or even middle school. This is things that these are things that anybody can read and take and expand on, and things that they might not have considered or known about in life. And maybe it gives them a bit of a different viewpoint and reconsideration on certain things that they might otherwise have known or not known. Um, and so that's what that's what we're hoping that that project will really work with in terms of bringing in new scholars that might feel left out in different places or might not find access points other places, and then get that accessible to other people out there. I love to hear that, that you're making academics and academia more accessible. Because like you said, there's so much incredible work happening, I know, here at CMU and I'm sure at other institutions. So to hear that there's groups out there and faculty members out there that want to make sure that everybody has access to the knowledge, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. Being a critique of of media, we haven't talked about the medium um, film and television. And I have to ask before we go today, is film dead? (laughs) So I, I was... As we talked uh, uh, earlier that I am actually, I wrote a presentation for CSA and I'm working on the paper right now in terms of, especially after COVID, um, is cinema dead, right? Is going to the cinemas and that medium of creating for the larger film uh, presentation and exhibition, is that 
done for. Um, and there are a lot of people who said, yes, even before COVID, there were people who were complaining about ticket prices, movies weren't that good, the concession prices, things like that. Um, but then COVID happened and they were stuck. People were stuck home. And what happened? Even more people who didn't have streaming suddenly subscribed to streaming. And that was kind of an eye-opener for a lot of people who hadn't cord-cutted and saw that there's a lot more content accessible to them. And you know, even prior to COVID, a lot of film industries were kind of evolving and shifting, showing opera instead. Uh, Regal Theatre would always have monthly opera showings, or they now show concerts, you can go watch concerts at the theater, you know, which is great because a lot of people love concerts, but maybe you don't have the money to go to one. What's the next best cool experience? Not just watching it at home, which Disney Plus has now shown two different concerts, Billie Eilish and BTS, but why not even show that in theater? Um, the problem was trying to get people back into cinemas after COVID kind of a little bit calmed down a bit, but you're still sick. And the problem is like a lot of people just got used to online streaming and the different platforms there. And that price tag still kind of hits a lot. Um, and it's amazing though, because I maybe would have been more on the side of, yeah, I don't know if it's dead, but it's definitely not doing great. And then Top Gun happened. And boy, did it break records. And so I don't think it's a question anymore of, us, is cinema dead? I think it's a question of, are certain kinds of films in cinema now dead, right? Are we, we've already seen that the blockbuster had the biggest power, but now more so than ever, it seems that if people are going to go to the movies, they want to go to the movies for a blockbuster. Top Gun was a blockbuster. First of all, you're Tom Cruise, you're really cool jets, and they were really loud. And I just don't think that if I was sitting at home, in my even medium-sized TV that I would have had the exact same experience. Heck, even my parents, who have the much nicer TV, much bigger, with a beautiful surround sound and subwoofer, still wouldn't have had quite the same seat-shaking experience that I got when I was watching that. Um, and so it's, it's, I think that's going to be more of the question in terms of a blockbuster is now going to really take over fully and completely in the cinema scene. And what does that mean for art house and for other genres of cinema that don't rely on big explosions and big jets and Tom Cruise. Well, Dr. Ventner, thank you so much for being here today. I have so many mixed emotions talking to you, uh, <laughs> but you are a wealth of knowledge and a breath of fresh air. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the See Me Now podcast. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.